0: We're getting close to the end, folks. In fact, let me tell you this. After today, Paul wraps up the letter. We're going to deal with various verses, and after these verses, Paul really goes into closing mode. Um, There are some closing salutations. Several closing exhortations. But really, we're at the end. After today. Let's pick up reading in verse 14. I myself am satisfied. Now, I'm reading from the ESV I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the Gospel of Christ. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the Gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. I want to stop reading there. My aim today is to deal with verses 14 through 19. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a long time coming. We've been climbing. If You can picture it kind of like a mountain. We've been climbing this mountain of the epistle to the Romans. Folks, I believe Paul has brought us to the top. I think we're at the summit in these verses. As we've been climbing, He brought us through depravity. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that does good. Not even one. He brought us through the depravity of all men. All men, Jew and Gentile alike, under sin. And then He opens up to us the glories, the majesty of the Gospel. I mean, is there a book outside of the Gospels themselves that portray the very person of Christ in His life, in His death, is there a book in all the New Testament that so gloriously sets forth the Gospel? And then after he does that, he comes into chapter 12 and he gives us four chapters of practical exhortation as to how these who are saved by this gospel, those who are partakers of the blood of Christ, how they ought to live. And here, as he's, he, brethren, it's, it's like Paul brings us up on top of this mountain and he brings us to the very, the very face of a cliff and he has us look out over now to see the big picture and there over the breezes of that vast scenic. View that he's created for us. He wants us to breathe in deep and he wants us to be amazed by the fullness. He wants, I'm convinced, he wants us to shout. He wants us to lose our breath. He wants us to disturb us out of our satisfaction with little things. And I want you to see this here we go. And I'm not going to say everything that can be said about these verses, but I want to to try to bring out much. I have three PS's. And it's not like this is any postscript at all. They just kind of fell out. They fall out in the the ESV. I realize in other translations it, it wouldn't have been there, Paul's satisfaction. Second, priestly service. Third, powerful signs. So here we go. First thing I want you guys to see is Paul's satisfaction. Where's that at? Well, in the ESV, it comes out of verse 14. Look there with me. Verse 14. I myself, who's that? Paul am satisfied. So you see, I'm not making it up, right? Paul's satisfaction. That's where I get that from. Now, some of your Bibles may say convinced, persuaded. This is a satisfaction that comes from persuasion, from conviction. That's the idea behind that word. He's got this satisfaction or this conviction about these Roman Christians. He says about you, my brothers. Now, you just make a statement there. Paul isn't just satisfied with the men. He's satisfied with the sisters as well. Um, the ESV actually is correct when they translate the word brothers. Why? The word is plural and it is in the masculine. But the thing is, based on context, it can mean all men, or it can mean men and women. And obviously, there are numbers of times in the New Testament where we get the word where it includes brothers and sisters. Paul is satisfied with these brethren. Brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Let me, I'm going to tell you right now. At least two of the points that I have to bring out today are controversial. Or at least the way I present them, I'm going to present them in a controversial manner. So, hold on to your pants. Look. I want you guys to be Berean. I want you to search the Scriptures to see if what I tell you is so. You know what? I, I am not interested in simply bringing popular views on things. And I am not interested in simply making people comfortable by the statements. I, my, my greatest desire is to be biblical. Look, I want to tell you something. If you look at the text here, I want it to sink in. Paul says these Christians are what? Full of goodness. Doesn't matter what translation you have, they all say that. Full of goodness. It does not say that these Christians are full of wretchedness. They are full of goodness. Look, he does not say that they have a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Paul clearly, I want you to hear this, Paul is clearly not afraid to have the Roman Christians thinking they are full of goodness. How do I know that? Because he tells them they're full of goodness. You don't tell somebody they are something if you don't want them to think that they are that. Right? He clearly doesn't think that for a Christian to think he is full of goodness must mean that the Christian is ignorant about the real state of his own heart. Paul says these Roman Christians are full of goodness. He doesn't just say it. He says he's persuaded. He's satisfied. He's confident that it's so. Now look, brethren. Paul isn't just saying that he's confident that they have a good standing with God, right? Christians do have a good standing with God. In fact, they have a righteous standing. They have a just standing. They have a perfect standing because they are robed in the righteousness of Christ. But he's not talking about any kind of goodness that's imputed from Christ to us. That's not what he's talking about. He is saying they are full of goodness. Goodness in a sense that he's indicating that in their lives, in their godly practice, in their daily walk, by their Christ-like works, in their righteous daily demeanor, they are people who are full of goodness. If you don't believe that, all we have to do is look a little bit at the context here. Look down at verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Not to disobedience, to obedience. Not where they're perpetually and always never doing the things that they want to do. He's bringing them to a point of obedience. We can jump down further. Look again in 16.19. In For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. You see what He's saying? Your obedience. He's Yes, by their blood-bought status, they have a good standing with God. Obviously. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a fullness of goodness that has to do with their obedience. And he says he's satisfied, he's persuaded, he's confident that this is so. Brethren, look back with me at Romans 6.17. Paul is not only persuaded, he's not only rejoicing that they're full of goodness and their obedience is known to all. In Romans 6.17 he says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. The standard of teaching is the Word of God, folks. Do you all see this? Not only is he persuaded and confident and satisfied and rejoicing, he's thanking God for it as well. Brethren, the Christian is not said to be deceitful in the heart or desperately wicked in the heart. The Christian is one who has become obedient from the heart. He's been given a new heart with the law written on that heart. The heart of stone has been removed, we were told, by the prophet. Paul does not say that if the Christian thinks He is obedient from the heart. It must be because he doesn't really know the depravity of his own heart. No, brethren. Paul is satisfied by the fullness of goodness of these Christians. He's thanking God that these one-time slaves have been set free to obedience and goodness. Brethren, this is nothing other than the power of the cross. Transformed lives. Now, somebody might get the strange idea, well, but you know that was a long time ago, and that was right after the cross, and that was in the early days, and that was when the apostles were still around. and maybe some power was in that church that we don't know of today. Maybe, yes, they were full of goodness, but maybe as time goes on, that we should really think about Christians not so much as full of goodness, but maybe more full of wretchedness and wretched men and women. and, and... well, brethren, I'll tell you this. Next to Romans fifteen fourteen, you, you could write third John eleven. Be good to write that there. And you can turn to Third John eleven with me, or you can just listen to me read it. But what I'm going to prove to you from Third John eleven is that the Christian being full of goodness is not just something that was true of the Roman Christians, but may or may not be true of us today if we're a Christian. Folks, John says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So let's, let's be done. Let's put to death any notion that somehow the Roman Christians were superior to the rest of us or lived on some higher plane than other Christians. Or if you suppose there was some unique power let loose in the church in those days that we know very little of today. To put it to death. 3 John 11. Basically, brethren, if you're Christian, if you're from God, if you've been born of God, you do good. You have a fullness of goodness. That's what Christians are. They're full of good. That's what Paul is convinced of and satisfied with with regards to these Roman Christians. If you tr- look, folks, I'll tell you this. If you try to minimize this, if you try to dismiss this, or in any way attack this, you attack the very thing that is bringing apostolic satisfaction. You just can't get around that. And I'm emphasizing this because there is a notion in many Reformed circles that the Christian is basically wretched. Whereas we read, you know know what? You, You come to the Bible and what do you read? You read things like this. David says in one of the Psalms, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. And I would suggest that perhaps, possibly, the reason that some Christians today have problems with David saying things like that and have real difficulty saying it about themselves, perhaps, has to do with a wrong interpretation of Romans 7. A wrong interpretation of the Christian life. A wrong view about the Christian's nature. Look, as a young Christian, I was exposed to this kind of thinking. I was exposed to Arthur Pink. Men like that. Listen to this, folks. Listen to what Pink says. He says, Christians walking around constantly moaning over their wretchedness expresses the normal experience of the Christian. And any Christian who does not so moan is in an abnormal and unhealthy state spiritually. The man who does not moan like this on a daily basis is either so out of communion with Christ, or so ignorant of the teaching of Scripture, or so deceived about his actual condition, that he knows not the corruptions of his own heart and the abject failure of his own life. Brethren, listen to me. You can walk around daily moaning and groaning over your abject failure. But I'm persuaded from God's Word that God does not want you moaning like that. I'm not quite certain what Bible Pink was reading. But brethren, I'll tell you what, this is no small matter. Because in our second point, we're going to come back to this. We're going to pull this point forward with us. And if you're not able to pull this point forward, you're going to miss the very climax of the book of Romans. Now brethren, that's not to say that Paul is saying that we're perfect here. Obviously, when he says full of goodness, and he says that they have all knowledge, he also said that they had the ability to instruct. Or that is the word admonish. Now folks, you don't need to be instructed if you have absolutely the perfect knowledge and understanding of everything. You don't have to be admonished clearly unless there are things in your life that you need to be corrected, instructed, and admonished about. He is not talking about perfection here, but he is certainly talking about Christians own a characteristic whereby it can be said they are fullness, full of goodness, and we don't want to diminish that reality at all. And I'm telling you, if you do that, if you cannot enter in to David saying, "Judge me according to my righteousness, judge me according to my integrity," if you cannot look at this church and say. Yes, there are people there that are full of goodness. And I'm not talking about the false professors. I'm talking where there's true Christianity. Brethren, if you can't say that, if you can't go there, if you've got a theology that doesn't allow that, then I'm going to tell you, you're going to miss the very pinnacle of the book of Romans. You're going to miss something that is super important about the glory of God. So, let's go to the second point. Priestly service. Let's pick things up there in verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? Bringing them into remembrance. Not so much that Paul is convinced they've never heard these things. He's reminding them. So much of the preaching is reminder. Because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service. There's our two words. We had Paul's satisfaction. Now the second point is priestly service. The NAS has ministering as a priest which is probably more appropriate since it's a participle. We'd be looking for a word with an ing ending. The King James and the New King James, they just put ministering. Now let me tell you this. This is not the common generic word for service like we get our word deacon from. This is a word that specifically has to do with the service of a priest. That's why the NAS and the ESV put the word priest in there or priestly. Why? Because it's specifically that kind of service. And it's the priestly service of the Gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Okay? What's all that about? Brethren, I want to tell you a very basic fact about a priest. Paul's talking here about doing something and he refers to it as priestly service. So here's one of the most basic facts I want you to know about a priest. I'm not talking about a Catholic priest. I'm not talking about a Hindu priest. I don't know what all they do. In fact, the more you learn about what they do, the less you want to know what they do. Right? I'm talking about a God-ordained priest. What do God-ordained priests do? What is their major function? Hebrews 10.11, don't turn there. Just listen to me read it. Every priest stands daily at his service." That's great. That's a perfect text. Because we have the priest, he's at his service. Paul's talking about priestly service. Here it is. Every priest stands daily at his service offering. That's what priests do. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Lay it down, folks. Priests offer sacrifices to God. That's the main thing they do. Priestly service has to do with presenting an offering to God. Jesus Christ is our great High Priest for one main reason, folks. He made an offering to God. He offered Himself once for all. But There's there's what you have priests doing. The main thing. Priests offer a sacrifice to God. So, if that's the case, When Paul tells us he's got this priestly service, well, what's the next thing you would expect him to tell us? We'd expect that he would tell us about some sort of offering that he's making to God, right? Wouldn't you expect that? He's talking about priestly service. The main things priests do is they make offerings. Wouldn't you expect that the next thing Paul would do when he tells us about he's got this priestly service, he, he would tell us about some offering that he's making to God? Well, isn't that exactly what he does in the text? What's he offering? What does the text say? What's the offering? Gentiles! He's offering the Gentiles. An acceptable offering to God. The Gentiles. Well, that's that that could almost be strange. In, in the hearing of our just imagine if the local newspapers and the local authorities, the police and whatever, heard that we were making an offering of Gentiles to God here at Faddy's. You think somebody might be concerned? Offering Gentiles? I mean if you think about offering offering goats and bulls and sheep. I mean, that might have a strange ring to it. What does that mean? Well, He doesn't leave us in the dark. Let's pick up in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, or therefore... And therefore, the then, is referring back to what He just said about His priestly service. So He's talking about it. He says, I have reason to be proud of My work for God. Well, what's that work? The work is the priestly service. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. There it is. There's the sacrifice. Paul isn't talking about some priestly service in which he indiscriminately offers up just any old Gentile to God. The only Gentile offering that's acceptable to the Lord is what? The obedient Gentile. This is, brethren... whether it's the life of this church, or what we're doing in Corpus, or if God gives us an open door in Laredo, or over in Turkey, or in Indonesia, or in India, brethren, down in Peru, you need to realize this is the issue. This is the very climax. This is the summit of the matter. This is where all the glory to God comes. There is an offering that is made to God. And what is it? It is not the disobedient Gentile. It is the obedient Gentile. It is Gentiles brought to obedience. Just listen to me. As Paul started this letter, he was on a direction all the time from the very first chapter and the first few verses. Paul has been moving in this direction the whole entire time. Listen to what he says. He says, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. There it is. The obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. There's the Gentiles. All the nations. For the sake of His name. That means for His glory. Brethren, for the glory of the living Christ. Gentiles are being brought to the obedience of faith. That means that they're falling down before Christ. They're submitting. He said, unless you forsake all that you have, you can't be My disciples. Men and women coming and saying, I forfeit family. I will forfeit even My own life to have you in obedience. I'm following you at all costs. I surrender all. I'm coming. And Christ is saying, I receive glory from the Gentiles. Glory from the nations. That's how the glory comes. Not that we're a bunch of wretched people who can never do the things that we want to do. That isn't the case. It's people in whom there is fullness of goodness. Brethren, this is the priestly service. And it wasn't just Paul's. I tell you, coming back from Turkey, and there's Octave. We stopped there in this little village, and there's a great big mountain there. And I said, Octave... That mountain, we can say to it if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, be removed and it will move. And as we were looking at it, I was thinking about the great mountain that stands in our way between where we are now and having a church where the Gentiles are offered up as obedient. Obedient to the commission. A Turkish church obedient. Ready to plant other churches. Ready to carry forth the commission. Ready to proclaim Christ among their own Islamic people. The same thing down in Corpus. What are we looking for? Are we looking for a bunch of people who barely are discernible from the world? Who barely are recognizable as being any different? Brethren, that is not what brings Christ's glory among the nations. It is by the obedience of faith. It is the Gentiles being brought to obedience full of goodness. This wretched man idea of Christianity. Brethren, I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not saying we don't have battles to fight. Obviously by the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. And it's a battle and we cut off right hands. And we cut off feet. And we pluck out eyes. And it's not easy. And the battle isn't won in a day. But I'm telling you this, what the Bible makes out and makes plain after the whole book of Romans, It's not a bunch of wretched, defeated people. It's people who are triumphant. And we are more than conquerors in Christ. And that's the idea. They have come to this Gospel and it has radically changed their life. Radically turned it upside down. And that is what brings glory to Him. When the churches are barely discernible from the world, and you've got a bunch of worldlings in the church, and they walk around all the time so... Full of abject failure, like Pink says, brethren, that is not what brings glory to Christ. And from the very beginning of the book, Paul has been showing us in the direction of the obedience of faith. He starts the book, he closes the book, he's talking to them now. He says, I rejoice. Your obedience is known to all. Back there in Romans 6, he says, I thank God you've become obedient from the heart. Now you become disobedient from the heart. Not that you can never do any good. He says, they're full of goodness. Brethren, this is it. This is the offering. And Paul isn't the only priest, we're all priests. We, brethren, he gave apostleship and grace to the church to bring about the obedience of faith. Apostleship is simply sending forth men in the power of God and women with the message of God to bring these nations in. I brought up the fact we we were some of us listening to the biography of Whitfield the other night. Brethren, if you have not listened to it, Steve Lawson preached over here at Believers Fellowship that second night on Friday night, he preached on Whitfield, and I'm telling you, the Spirit of God was in the place. Brethren. We need to lay down our lives to be a people full of goodness. We need to lay down our lives to bring other people into this obedience. This is why it will never work in Turkey, folks, when those Turks are coming and they're interested in the Gospel to do anything less than lay it down. Full obedience to Christ! No compromise! Not for family, not for religion, not for anything! And if we don't do that, brethren, we are not going to have what it is that brings honor to the name of the living Christ. Brethren, I know this life is a battle and I know some days we're discouraged. But if it can't be said as a whole that we are full of goodness, then we're missing the very reality of the Word of God. And I'll tell you this, Paul says in verse 17, He says in Christ Jesus, then, and he says he has pride in his work. You know, when I first looked at that, I didn't like that word. I looked at pride there, and I said, uh uh. I don't like that. Brethren, I'll tell you this the word can mean that. Oftentimes in some of your Bibles, it says boasting. This is the idea. Brethren, I want you to hear me very carefully here. Paul was boasting. He wasn't boasting in himself. You know what he's boasting in? He was boasting in Christ Jesus. He was boasting. All you have to do is look at the context there. He says, verse 18 I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So it's Christ who accomplishes it. Look in verse 15. He says, it's the grace given me by God. In verse 16, it's the Spirit of God who sanctifies the Gentiles, making them an acceptable offering as Paul seeks to carry out his priestly service. Verse 19, it's by the power of the Spirit of God. In verse 17, it's in Christ Jesus. In verse 18, it's what Christ accomplishes through me. I'll tell you this Paul is boasting, he's exalting, he's glorying. All those words come right out of that word he's using there that in the ESV is pride or in many of your Bibles boasting. I'll tell you this, brethren, don't miss this. John, John and I were just talking the other day. We're looking at this church and we're amazed by it. What in the world's holding this thing together? And we were both admitting it wasn't us. But I'll tell you what, that's exactly what God wants us to think. And you know what? God doesn't want us to look at the church as it's growing numerically with those who are full of goodness, and as it grows in the very members that already are here in a greater and greater fullness of goodness, God doesn't want us to look at that and just be silent. He doesn't want us to look at that and sweep it under a rug. Now, He doesn't want us boasting in us. And brethren, we can do that. His boast, it's the grace of God. His boast sanctified by the Spirit. His boast in Christ Jesus. His boast, what's accomplished in me through Christ. His boast in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? I'll tell you this. God wants us thrilled with that. You can see it there in Paul. He's busting forth with this. God wouldn't have put that in here if God didn't want us likewise thrilled with this. And listen, brethren, if you are not thrilled with the church increasing in those obedient to Christ. And increasing where the believers here themselves are growing more and more fully devoted to Christ. And if we don't look at that and say praise God and be thrilled by it, then brethren, we've lost the heart and soul of this. What God wants us doing he wants us proclaiming this Gospel and as we see that Gospel take effect and through our labors, brethren, that doesn't mean we sit back. It doesn't mean we sit in our chair. It means we're more like Whitfield every day where we realize we have the message. The city around us is perishing. We've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to preach. We've got to go to the nations. We've got to spread out in Texas. We've got to preach this Word. But as we see men and women falling down in obedience to Christ, as we see the numbers of those people in this church grow, as we see the very individuals growing in their commitment, in their sacrifice, in their devotion to Christ, God doesn't want us to just sit back and ignore it. And brethren, I'll tell you what, when you don't ignore it, but you joy in it and rejoice in it and glory in it and exalt in it, provided the attention really is directed towards the triune God who gives the grace, the Spirit who sanctifies and who has the power, and Christ who works through us. Provided we're really pointing to Him and rejoicing in Him. Brethren, that's the kind of priestly service that God would have us to have. Brethren, boasting, don't miss this, boasting is part of the goal If our church is growing, where more and more Gentiles are being offered up as living sacrifices. You remember that's how he started this whole practical section back in Romans 12. Living sacrifices. Here it is. Paul, through the preaching and proclamation of the Gospel, through word and deed, offering up living sacrifices. That's the heart and the soul of this. Brethren, if we're all just a bunch of abject failures like Pink says. A bunch of wretched men who only practice the evil we don't want to do. Let me tell you something. The whole thing comes toppling down. It's only when men can talk about their righteousness and integrity like David did. It's only when we talk about the fullness of goodness of our people and when we can talk about our obedience and practicing righteousness and doing the will of the Father in Heaven and being living sacrifices of God sold out to Christ. It's only then that we are accomplishing one of the greatest purposes for the church. Because it's only then that God's getting the glory for having done it. It's only then when the power of the cross is put on display. Well, brethren, God wants us to have a thrill that He is at work in the church. God's not going to be honored if we're not thrilled. He wants us to look at everything and say, glory to God. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. I have one more thing I'm going to say as we end. Another controversial thing, Powerful signs. Another P.S. Paul's satisfaction, priestly service, third powerful signs. Brethren, I'm not mentioning powerful signs because I think that powerful signs are the things most necessary to bring out the obedience of the Gentiles for the sake of Christ's name among the nations. I'm not bringing it out that way. The reason I, Not because I think it's most important. I think it's important. I don't think it's most important. I'm bringing it out because lots of people have problems with it. It makes lots of people a little bit unsettled. But you'll notice, let's read Romans 15, 18, and 19. Because you know, even though it may not be the most important thing, it's very interesting that Paul says what he says here. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Now it's like he goes on to express what this deed is, or some of these deeds might be, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. I have We jump forward a little. I have fulfilled the ministry of the Gospel of Christ. He tells us where he filled it, but he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And how did he do it? By word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders. That is part of fulfilling the ministry of the gospel of Christ. By the power of the Spirit of God. Brethren, I know this makes some people uncomfortable. Like I said before, I'm not concerned about whether we feel comfortable or not. My main concern is to be biblical. Hear what the Word of God says Gentiles are brought to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Here's the question. Should we expect the supernatural today? Should we expect powerful signs today? And I would say this, the burden of proof, I do not believe, lies upon us who say yes they do. The burden of proof to prove that they don't exist today lies upon those who don't think they exist today. Why? Because the Bible certainly tells us that there are supernatural gifts. Nobody's going to deny that. Nobody's going to argue that. Nobody can read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and look at all the gifts that have been given to the church and deny the fact that at least at one time, miracles, that which is supernatural, the healing, prophetic utterance, utterances of wisdom and knowledge, and various supernatural times of gifts. Which one we might put in the signs and wonders category or sign gifts as some like to call them. But here's the thing, nobody denies that they're in the Bible. Well, here's the next issue. 1 Corinthians 12 is not a list of gifts that apostles have. They're a list of gifts that are found in the church. Here's another thing. There's not a single word in all the Bible that says anywhere that these gifts somehow fell out as time went on. Now I know there's a lot of people trying to make that point, but the problem is they can't make it biblically. There isn't isn't a biblical text that would seem to give us any indication that there's been a cessation in these things. But... Here, I want to bring up two cautions. Two monumental cautions. First, there at the end of verse 18, Paul says the Gentiles are brought to obedience by word and deed. Let me tell you this, if there's any kind of miraculous deed involved in the offering of the Gentiles as obedient living sacrifices to God, those miraculous deeds always come second to the Word. And you see that there. It's Word then-deed. Folks, deeds can't, don't, never will save until and unless sinners hear Jesus Christ proclaimed. Jesus Christ coming to this earth to save sinners. Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ shedding His blood for the sake of sinners to wash away all their guilt. The fact, He died for sinners. The fact He was buried. He rose again. Death couldn't hold Him. He was victorious over it. Until the sinner hears that, they cannot be saved. Faith comes by, and that hearing is by, the Word of God or the Word of Christ. Brethren, deeds will never, never, never by themselves save. It is the message of the cross of Christ. Whatever place, whatever category you want to put powerful signs and wonders, it better always be beneath the Word of God. Always. The Word of God must have primacy. All you have to do is look at the context here. Verse 15, I have written to you. There's the Word. Verse 16, Paul's priestly service is... The priestly service of the Gospel of God. There's the Gospel. There's the Word. There at the end of verse 19, I fulfilled the ministry of the Gospel of Christ. Verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the Gospel. Word first, then deed. So, so yes, I think we have every biblical reason to believe that supernatural, powerful signs and wonders are for Today. But anybody that would ever make them superior to the Word of God, they're not being biblical. Paul clearly in that context there shows that the Gospel is first. It is primary. Any deeds fall beneath that. Yes, there's a place for deeds of charity, deeds of benevolence, deeds that are supernatural, but always secondary to the Word of God. The second caution is this. You cannot help when you read about signs and wonders in your Bibles. You you cannot help to see if, if you're being observant at all, that when Christ talks about the signs He did, and when Paul talks about the signs He and the other apostles did, you cannot help but realize that when they refer to their signs and wonders they are definitely indicating that there was something unique about the signs and wonders they did. Jesus Christ in John chapter 5 is asserting he is the Son of God. He's asserting he's the Son of Man. He's asserting that he has the ability to impart life. He's asserting that on the final day he will call all the dead to rise. He's asserting these things. And as he asserts them, in the face of these doubting Jews, he says to them, In John 5.36, the works that the Father hath given Me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about Me that the Father has sent Me. Now look, He says, the works I do bear witness about Me. In other words, the works I do bear witness that I truly am the Son of God. The works I do bear witness I'm the Son of Man. The works I do bear witness I am the One who will judge all men in that day. And I am the One who will call everybody forth. And I am the One who has life. And if his works were no different than any works that the rest of us did, it certainly, the logic of his argument just falls to pieces, does it not? In other words, he's saying, look, my works are so distinguished, so peculiar, so specific to me, that when you see them, you must come to the conclusion, I am all these things I say. And that logic means nothing if all through history, people have just been doing just as many we don't know of anybody that's done works of so mighty, so supernatural as He did. Nobody ever has. But then the Apostle Paul says something uniquely similar in 2 Corinthians 12.12. He says, the signs of a true Apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. You know what he's doing with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians? He's validating his apostleship. And he's saying, Corinthians. The same Corinthians who he wrote to, acknowledging that they have this whole list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, he looks at them and he says, hey, I know I've told you and taught you about the gifts. I know I've identified all sorts of different supernatural gifts. But let me tell you this, one of the ways you can tell that I'm a true apostle when I was in your midst is I did the works of an apostle. Now clearly, that argumentation doesn't hold up if everybody does just as many works as an apostle does. I think it's clear from Scripture that there's not a word of cessation, but we need to know this. We need to be clear on this. The Word of God always takes superiority over supernatural deeds. And two, we should never expect that we're going to do the same degree or the same kind or the same intensity of supernatural things that either Christ or the apostles did. And I think if you search out the history books, you cannot come to any other conclusion that God has never ceased to be supernatural. And He's never ceased to do supernatural things through His people. And you say, well, why don't we see it? Well, I think some of us do see it. And I think the fact is that many times where people don't see it, Christ did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Where there's unbelief, He often isn't working. And then... Paul's also talking about he's out there on the front lines proclaiming Christ where he's never been proclaimed before. And oftentimes, folks, it's out on the front lines where the demons are thick. The people are in ignorance and darkness where God seems to rise up on a regular basis to vindicate His Word. Brethren, brethren, Those saints of old gathered together and they prayed this way. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to Your servants to continue to speak the Word with all boldness. Word first. Lord, help us speak the Word boldly. While You stretch out Your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Your holy servant Jesus. Brethren, I'll tell you this. We have a picture here. The Gentiles being brought to obedience. Through word and deed. Through the power of signs and wonders. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Apostleship and grace are given for the sake of His name, to bring about the obedience of faith. Brethren, Apostleship, That word apostle has to do with messengers. With a message. With a Gospel message. Brethren, we still live in a day and an age when we are sending forth men and women with the Gospel, whether it's up and down our own streets, whether it's in the different places we may have some interest in plant a church, whether it's overseas, out on those front lines, over there in Turkey, over there in northeast India, there where Nunu is working, there where Trevor's working among those cannibals. Brethren, we desire to see churches that are bending the knee to the living Christ. And God, give us the same Spirit that fell upon George Whitfield, that we look out and we realize we've got the truth. How can we sleep? How can we go to sleep? How can we rest? Brethren, through powerful signs and wonders, giving vindication to the powerful Word of God, the Gospel of the living Christ, we go forth in the power of our God. Brethren, He has made us a kingdom and priests to our gods. We are priests. We have the ability to offer God offerings that are acceptable. Brethren, in our obedience, the obedience of the Gentiles, may we be thrilled with it. May we proclaim a Gospel to see it come to pass. May we seek God that as He gives us boldness. Seek Him for it. Be bold like they were. Ask God, do the supernatural. Vindicate Your Word. You believe we're preaching the truth? You believe a lot of people are not preaching the truth? God, do what needs to be done to vindicate the Word we speak. And do it in power. And bring these rebels to the feet of the cross. So that we may have a priestly sacrifice in our day to offer the Gentiles up in our day. This day's not done. This age isn't over. Christ told them, I'll be with you to the end of the age. And the end of the age hasn't come. It's still the age, folks. It's the age of the Gospel. It's the age of the cross. It's the age of the church. And we have the truth. And in all power of the Holy Spirit, in signs and wonders, if need be, in the power of the Gospel. Brethren, our day is upon us and our day is short. Number your days. You weren't here, most of you, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, And 50 from now and 70 from now will be gone. And many people will never be remembered. I mean, brethren, 100 years after you're gone, you're not remembered. This is our day. It's fleeting. It's a flash in the pan. This is our day to offer those sacrifices to God. Brethren, are you going to sleep? Whitfield lived his day. He couldn't hold him back. You read the account of His life His last night on this earth. He wanted to keep running. The lost and the perishing were out there. Brethren, if you believe hell is what it is, if you believe it is the way it's described, the fierceness, the fury, of the wrath of God Almighty, if you even start to comprehend what it must be to weep day and night, wailing and gnashing of teeth, the worm never dies, where people are in eternal misery, where God has them, and His wrath is upon them, and He is pouring out that wrath for all their rebellion and all their hatred of Him according to perfect justice. Pristine, white, hot, perfect justice. That every sinner deserves. But there's a remedy. And we have it. And it's our day. And the priestly offering is for us today. God help us. May He give us as they prayed of old the boldness to proclaim that word as He does signs and wonders and all the power of the Spirit of God. And Brethren, let us be. Thrilled when we see it. Let us boast in what Christ does through us. Yes, He does it through us. We're instruments of His using. But brethren, whatever you see God do here, don't raise your neck up high like it's us. Don't raise up your neck like we figured out some secret. I'll tell you this, it's the grace of God only and it's what He's doing through us. And if He gives us something others don't have, brethren, may it make you go to your face in wonder and in thrill that not only could we be chosen in eternity past, not only has God set His love upon us, now He's given us the privilege to live in a day and be in a church where we actually see that He's at work and that we can be a part of offering up that priestly sacrifice. Brethren, we of all people are most blessed. Let it thrill your soul and give Him all the glory for the sake of His name among the nations.